Thank you, Danny and Sarah Claire and the team for leading us in worship so far. Thank you, Mary. Where'd Mary go to? She might have stepped out. Thanks, Mary, for leading us in confession as well. We really appreciate your words and your voice. Um, my name is Drew Melton. I'm one of the pastors here at Providencia. You've got me three weeks in a row. That's because COVID has torn through our lead pastor, Keith Case's house, like wildfire. If you didn't think it was contagious, just put seven people in a house together for two weeks, and there it goes, all the way through all of them. Um, so we want to be praying for the Case family, especially for those kids who have had to, been, had to be in virtual school for two-plus weeks in the end, which is awful. Um, and pray for the kids who have had to be in a house with Keith and Amy for two-plus weeks without f stopping. That's um, pretty tough as well. Um, but we do pray for the recovery of the cases. Some of them have already recovered. Um, by God's grace, we might get a few of them in physical form next Sunday, which would be wonderful. Um, tonight, before we uh, get to our reading, uh, the sermon is going to explore some things uh, that make our hearts burn within us. We're going to focus in on this uh, phrase about burning hearts in Luke 24. And we're also going to explore Jesus' invitation to touch his wounds. In our passage, which I'll read in a moment, Jesus puts his wounds on full display for his disciples. By touching him, they see. They touch and connect with wounds dealt to Jesus by the powers and authorities of the state. Wounds dealt by those with malice in their heart and hate in their eyes. This work of being willing to touch wounds and connect with them is part of the work that we try to do in story groups. It's something we're learning, or rather relearning, as disciples of the one who invites us to touch his wounds. And it's part of the work that we unfortunately have to do nearly every week as a community, even as a church. In the wake of the news of the deaths of Dante Wright and Adam Toledo and those in Indianapolis and even more over the last few weeks, we're going to observe a few moments of silence. And I have to admit, I didn't want to do this tonight. I wanted to sidestep it, to put my mind on other things, to look away. That is evidence of my privilege. As author and scholar Soong Chan Ra puts it in his book, Prophetic Lament, as privileged churchgoers, we, I, often have the luxury of ignoring the suffering other. But lament reminds us to hear the voices of those in our society who often bear the greatest burden of suffering. So we pray the lament that we have prayed several times, many, many times here at Providencia. Lord Jesus, give us the courage not to look away. So let's take a moment of silence to grieve and to resolve to act for justice on behalf of those who have borne the greatest burden of suffering.
our reading tonight from Luke chapter 24 really could be from verse 13 all the way through the end of the chapter. That's a really long reading, so I won't put you through me reading that. But if you want to go home tonight or sometime this week and read all of Luke 24, that'd be awesome. I'm going to read from verses 36 to 48. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them here to eat. They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. This ends the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I was sitting in the beautiful, historic sanctuary of St. Andrew Street Baptist Church. I almost said it in a Cambridge accent. Sorry for that. Uh, The oldest Baptist church in Cambridge, where I was an associate pastor for a few years. I was listening to a lot of wonderful sermons that were being given at the International Congress on Preaching. Our church was hosting this event. The sanctuary there isn't completely dissimilar to this one. It's a little bit older and a little bit bigger, and there's a balcony that doesn't just go across the back of the sanctuary. It comes all the way up the sides, all the way to even with the platform, so that in true Baptist style, no matter where you sit in this sanctuary, you're never too far from the pulpit. It's important to Baptists. And the acoustics in this sanctuary, oh, the acoustics The architects have really outdone themselves. This is a feature of buildings that were built before amplification. But the way this sanctuary is built is that you could stand in the front center of the platform and in a normal voice speak to the entire sanctuary. The acoustics would carry the sound across the back walls and it would reverberate in the room. You could speak in a normal voice and everyone could hear you. It was really phenomenal. In this particular instance, I was sitting about where Scott Hansel is sitting. Scott, will you wave at us for just a second? I was sitting there at this International Congress on Preaching, and it was just one sermon after another, with maybe one song in between, but this was like two and a half days of just one sermon after another. It's probably something like Dante's Seventh Circle of Hell for most of you, but for me, I was on board. I was there for it. 
But then I listened to a sermon given by Dr. Robert Smith, Jr. He's a professor of preaching at Beeson Divinity School. Or rather, I felt the sermon that Dr. Smith gave. He had moved away from the pulpit microphone. He had stepped down the two steps onto the floor where he was without amplification, and so the acoustics of the room were in full effect. And as Dr. Smith moved seemingly effortlessly from quoting scripture by memory to creative exegesis to deep practical theology to half of a stanza of an old hymn and then back to quoting scripture, my ears were shocked and my heart was burning in my chest. My legs started bouncing. You know how it does sometimes when you get anxious if you're sitting down? I had the urge to stand up. A sound arose in my chest and in my throat, echoing the rises and falls in the timber of his voice. And tears started rolling down my cheeks. I hadn't known preaching could be done like that. I hadn't known preaching could have such an effect. And I hadn't known how starved I was for that preaching. And it was in that moment that something in me was uncovered. It was a renewed desire to preach and a new desire to be reformed as a preacher. Maybe you can think of a moment similar to this in your own life. I'm sure it didn't happen during a sermon. I have no expectations that you all remember half of what Keith or I say up here. But maybe it happened out on the water. Maybe it happened while you were listening to music or reading a book. Maybe it happened while talking to a friend or over an exceptional meal. Maybe it even happened in story group. That sensation that your heart is burning and you're being drawn towards something. Compelled by it in a way that you maybe hadn't known before. Or maybe you'd known it before and you'd forgotten what it felt like. The great Irish author C.S. Lewis speaks often in his works about this kind of phenomenon. Of something he calls longing or desire or yearning, or nostalgia. He has to use four or five different words because he's really trying to get at one German word that means all of those things all at the same time. I won't butcher the pronunciation of the German word this evening, but it's great. He applies this concept of desire to many areas of life, including faith, but not limited to faith. One of the famous quotes from Lewis's most well-known work of nonfiction, which is mere Christianity, goes like this. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. It's a powerful apologetic for God's existence, and Lewis uses it to great effect. It's kind of easy to see why. He talks about all the things in life that we desire and how sometimes we attain those things and sometimes we don't. But no matter how many desires in life that we satisfy, there's a desire that cannot be satisfied by anything in this world. This idea has seeped 
into our Christian vernacular even. So now we sometimes hear people, I've heard people, refer to something like a God-shaped hole in each of us. If it's God-shaped, then only God can fit it, right? But sometimes I think to myself, that all seems a bit too simplistic. Lewis helpfully develops the idea further in the weight of glory, and we're going to come back to that in just a minute. But first, let's go into Luke chapter 24. We have two stories in Luke 24 that take place. One takes place on the road to Emmaus, and the other takes place back in Jerusalem in a room where Jesus' disciples are staying. And Luke informs us in his gospel account that both of these episodes happen on the very day that Jesus rose from the dead. So this is Easter Sunday. And the first episode starts as two friends are walking home from Jerusalem to Emmaus, a journey that might have taken half a day on foot. And the two are discussing all the events of the previous days when Jesus appears alongside them. But of course they don't recognize it's Jesus. And he asks them what they're discussing. Verse 17, Luke 24 says, At this question, the two stopped and stood still, and their faces were downcast. As I picture it in my mind, it's it's as if for the first time, they're going to have to say out loud what has happened. This kind of scene is so common in situations of bereavement. There's a moment when all of what you've been processing internally about the loss of a loved one has to coalesce in your mind and your mouth has to form the words, my son has died. My grandmother has died. My sister has died. My wife or husband has died. And these two are standing still for a moment, collecting themselves to utter those words, our friend has died. But they can't quite utter those words, so they say to Jesus, are you the only one in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened over the last few days? So Jesus asks again, what things? And these two then go on to describe Jesus to Jesus. He was a prophet. He was powerful. But then he was arrested and tried and killed. We had hoped he would be the one to redeem Israel, they say. But it turns out otherwise. So they think. They even tell Jesus that some of the women and the disciples have been to the tomb and found it empty. But they still haven't reached a point where an empty tomb might mean a resurrected Jesus. And what's the worst thing then that you could hear when you're in that moment of grieving? Somewhere on the list of worst things to hear would be someone telling you you're foolish and full of doubt. Jesus breaks at least one or two of the pastoral care rules that I learned in seminary in this story. 
but he's Jesus, and he's about to open their eyes. He says, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? Maybe Jesus says that passage from Isaiah 53 in the back of his mind that we read at the end of our Good Friday service. But Luke tells us that Jesus goes on to connect not just Isaiah 53, but the words of the Torah and all of the prophets to show them the Messiah. And then we pick up the story in verse 28. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. And they asked one another, were not our hearts burning within us on the road as he opened the scriptures to us? Hearts burning within us is such a great turn of phrase. And I think it gets at that feeling that we might have felt when the good news about Jesus finally got us. It might have been the first time you heard the good news about Jesus. It might have been the thousandth time. But when what Jesus has done and how it can change our lives is awakened in us, it's like a burning. It's a longing, a yearning, a desire. But it isn't always a wholly positive burning. Perhaps it is like the welling up of joy in the heart of the Ethiopian eunuch when Philip, one of Jesus' disciples, explains the the prophet Isaiah to him about the Messiah, Jesus. But it might also be like the dread in the heart of the Roman soldier at the foot of the cross who says, surely this man was the Son of God. Perhaps it's even in the sorrow of the hearts of these two who are on the road to Emmaus. They want redemption. We want redemption. We like the idea of Jesus, so we want the things about Jesus to be true. We want the prophecies to be true. We want the powerful word of God. But we need more than just the idea of these things. The idea of them is great. And it might even cause this longing and desire to well up inside us. But the idea of those things is not the thing itself. We need the actual thing. We need the actual person. Jesus. And here's where C.S. Lewis helps us again. He speaks of this longing in a beautiful, almost arresting style. Our commonest expedient is to call it beauty and behave as if that had settled the matter. The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. 
It was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. See, the Jewish people were almost nostalgic for this idea of a thing that they heard described in the law and the prophets of the Old Testament. But they had misinterpreted, or at least underinterpreted, who the Messiah would be and what the Messiah would accomplish. As a result of their misunderstandings, they made their idea of a Messiah into what Lewis calls a dumb idol. They expected overthrow of the Roman government. They expected reinstatement of their land. They expected a conquering king, not a servant king. And they certainly didn't expect a king who would die. So when that idea of a Messiah died, it broke their hearts. But a broken heart can still be a burning heart. And Sunday's coming. Here's where, to my knowledge, Lewis never ventures. And it's into the physicality of a burning heart. And connecting it to the physicality of Jesus' resurrection. The physicality of touching wounds. See, if we read this passage over again, and continue into this next episode I read a minute ago from Jerusalem... The physicality of everything that's happening will jump off the page at us. Pun intended. There's the walking on the road. Some of our deepest thinking is done when we're walking. There's the tangibility of the bread and the wine. A reminder of Jesus' body broken and his blood spilled out. There's the sitting down at the table that instigates recognition. But then there's the being robbed of Jesus' physical presence and the sustained joy of physical presence when all of a sudden he's disappeared from their sight. That only only prompts them to the interior examination about their own hearts. Were not our hearts burning within us? And now they're running again, this time back to Jerusalem, back to the physical space of crucifixion, back to the site of their own betrayals and denials and lack of faith, back to the space of grief where their friends are still grieving and confused. And then the physical risen Jesus stands among them. And he offers his body once more. Luke 24, verse 39. Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. But they're still not sure. 
These disciples are still not sure, even with the invitation to touch his wounds. So Jesus asks them if they have anything to eat. Physicality on display again. Touch me. Eat with me. Feel my presence. Breathe the air that I am breathing. Let your minds be opened, Jesus says in verse 45. This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and will rise again on the third day. See, Jesus draws us to himself in being lifted up on the cross. But he makes our hope real in the reaching out of his wounded hands, in opening up his wounded side, in refusing to hide his body because his body is what compels us. His resurrected body and the hope and victory that it represents is what compels us. It's what makes us wonder and imagine. It's what makes us desire. It's the thing that we long for. See my hands and my feet. Touch my wounds now healed and perfected. Feel the body that I have in store for you. If it were not so, I would have told you. But I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may also be. Jesus is who our hearts burn for. And he asks us to reach out and touch him. So we're going to conclude this time with a breath prayer. We're going to inhale together and exhale together. As we inhale, we're praying Jesus is who our hearts burn for. And as we exhale, we're praying reach out and touch him. If you're next to someone that you're living with, comfortable touching in this pandemic environment, I invite you to hold hands with the person next to you while we do this. If you're by yourself, don't worry. We're all going to close our eyes. And let's breathe in together. Jesus is who our hearts burn for. And out. Reach out and touch him. Breathe in. Jesus is who our hearts burn for. And out. Reach out and touch him. One more time. Breathe in. Jesus is who our hearts burn for. And out. Reach out and touch him.